head on there. Now, when, when you read the second century critics of the Christian movement, which I know many of you do on a regular basis, uh, the second century being Christianity in the 100s, uh, you will find that the critics of the Christian movement in the 100s had four basic criticisms of the Christian faith, and they fall into to four categories. First, they said that Christians were immoral cannibals. Now, that seems kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but kind of work with me here. This is where they said, and they got that from. They thought that Christians were immoral cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of a man during their love feasts. So that was one of the things that went around of why people were condemning the Christians. Another one was that Christians were atheists because they denied the Roman gods and they also refused to pay homage to Caesar as a deity. A third reason why people were anti-Christian in the 100s was that they said that Christians were anarchists. Again, because they refused to burn incense to Caesars and pledge ultimate loyalty to Rome and to Caesar, and because Christians in the early centuries also refused to fight in the army. And so they got the accusation as anarchists. And the fourth one that was continually thrown at Christians was that Christians were stupid because many come from the lower classes of society and people believed that Christians had weird superstitions. Now obviously you can see that there's a hint of truth in every single one of these. Uh, we do claim to eat the body and blood of someone, but you've got to understand what that means in the communion. Uh, we do refuse to pay homage to any other god or government leaders in regards to them being ultimate authority. We do refuse to pledge allegiance in regards to our country ultimately, and a lot of Christians do come from lower classes of society. But you also know that there's tons of untruth in those statements as well. Some of them were misunderstandings, misunderstandings of what actually goes on in communion, misunderstandings of what we think about government. The early Christian writers always said, we will pray for our government, we will just not pray to our government. And there is also a lot of purposeful misrepresentations of Christianity that happened. People that were just out maliciously to harm the Christian movement. And this can happen today. We see it on the media. We sometimes read articles online. And we can be frustrated. On the one hand, people just misrepresent us, misunderstand us. And sometimes people are maliciously trying to give a bad name to Christianity. But these ideas in the second century were some of the ideas that spurred on the persecution of Christians. It was these kinds of ideas that brought into the mind of people that Christians need to be destroyed. Obviously, you can't have a bunch of atheistic, anarchists, cannibals who are immoral running around in our society. It'll be the, the, the deterioration of our society. And so this rhetoric was thrown around to encourage the persecution of Christians. Into this situation, a man by the name of Justin Martyr came on the scene. Justin Martyr lived between the year 100 and 167 AD. Now, just to give you a 
picture of how close this is to New Testament times, the Apostle John, the one who knew Jesus, was one of Jesus' own disciples, died in the year 100, the year that Justin was born. So we're talking very early, kind of second or third generation of Christians was the time of Justin Martyr. Now, Justin Martyr had a sharp mind. He was deeply studied in the great thinkers of his day and of the past. By the age of 30, he was convinced that Plato had got it right, Plato's philosophy, and that he was the closest to the truth. And Justin declared himself a Platonist. But then, at the age of 30, in his own words, Justin wrote this that he met a certain old man, by no means contemptible in appearance, exhibiting meek and vulnerable manners, who encouraged him to rethink his platonic understanding of the human soul and immortality, and to consider Christianity. Now, Justin was the kind of person that would take up the challenge. Justin really wanted to know the truth, and figured that he should explore this Christianity thing that this old man had talked to him about. All he had known at this point was hearsay, rumors, and he decided to really look into it. And so for the next three to four years, he explored Christianity, and sometime before 135 AD, he converted and surrendered his life over to Christ. Now for Justin, however, this never meant that he had to throw off his occupation as a philosopher or teacher. Instead, after he became a Christian, Justin continued wearing his philosophical robe, the symbol of a teacher, and he began spreading Christianity as the true philosophy, he called it. He started a school in Rome and was influential in training even a number of the early Christian pastors in how to read scripture, how to understand their faith. He was also an individual who in Rome and other places was used by God to continually challenge the critics of Christianity, to present the truth of what Christians actually believe. This was important for both those outside of the church and also for those inside of the church. So Justin Martyr in some ways is an individual who birthed what is a tradition that we see in individuals like C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, Lewis, did much of the same type of thing. Alistair McGrath in our own day, or even Lee Strobel. You think of his books, Case for Christ, Case for the Creator. This apologist tradition, they call it. Uh, Justin was one of the church's early apologists, defender of the faith for those outside of the church and to educate those in the church. Now, it should be noted that Justin's parents were not Mr. and Mrs. Martyr. That was not his last name. The early church persecutions, unfortunately, eventually claimed the life of Justin as well. At the age of 67, under, interestingly, a philosopher emperor, Marcus Hilarius, uh, Justin was whipped and then he was beheaded simply for being a Christian and spreading Christian truth. And therefore, Justin joined those that we read about in Revelation chapter 6, where we read, Then the Lamb broke open the fifth seal, 
And I saw the altar of the souls of those who had been killed because they had proclaimed God's word and had been faithful in their witnessing. Justin's part of that great cloud of witnesses, those martyrs that had gone before. Now, each summer, I give a sermon about someone in church history or I give a sermon from someone in church history. It's kind of a tradition I've been doing for eight years. One week each summer to either introduce you to someone to church history by doing a whole sermon about them and their impact on the faith. Or by actually delivering to you a sermon from someone from church history. And so this morning what I want to do is to deliver to you a sermon by Justin Martyr called On the Resurrection of the Body, give you a bit of a flavor of what Justin Martyr was like, give you a little flavor of what the preaching was like almost 18 to 1900 years ago, some of the earliest preaching we have right after New Testament times. We can learn a lot from listening to our ancestors. They look at things that we forget to look at. They remind us of important issues. Justin Martyr is one of those ones we can learn from. In fact, one of the the great things that we have today in the fact that the church has been around for 2,000 years now is you can look at not only great teachers, but you can get the best of the best. I mean, we've got 2,000 years of great teachers and then some of the great, great teachers that have emerged from them. And I'm always thinking to myself, why would we want to learn from mediocre teachers when you can go to some of the best teachers? And we've got, especially today with things, public domain and internet and that, we have such access to some of the greatest Christian thinkers and teachers that can be tremendous helps in our journey as Christians to not give us the tunnel vision of only our culture and our age to learn the things of the faith and to learn what the church has continually preached and taught. Now, you can read the full version, or at least what we have of the full version. We don't have the full, full version. We have sort of a fragment of the full version. But you can read that online. Just Google Justin Martyr on the resurrection of the body or on the resurrection of flesh, and you can read the whole thing for yourself if you want. However... I need to warn you that the public domain is a 1885 version of it. That's why it's public domain. It no longer has a copyright on it. So it's a little bit in an older English. So what I'm going to give you this morning is an updated version of Justin Martyr's message. I worked this week on just rewriting it in more modern language so that it would be able to be listened to more pleasantly. I've also shortened his message by about half. I thought that uh, the full message would go on a little too long. I've also reorganized the material, so if you try to follow me and then you read it online, it won't parallel exactly, because Justin Martyr tended to kind of go all over the place a bit, and I tried to systematize it so that it followed a little bit more of a logical order that would be easier for us to follow. But what I've tried to do is make sure that it's Justin's content, Justin's message, that that's being communicated. These are his points. These are his um, uh, presentation that he gave a number of years ago. And so, I want to invite you now to welcome Justin Martyr to preach to us this morning a sermon called On the Resurrection of the Body. Justin knew the Christian faith and is considered one of the great early apologists of the church. Now, when I say apologist, I don't mean like the role in which I often find myself in relation to my wife. I mean he was a defender of the faith. 
there were a lot of people who misrepresented what Christianity was all about, intentionally or unintentionally, and Justin set them straight. He's also pretty famous for being one of the guys who used pagan Greek concepts to help illumine the teachings and personhood of Christ. He recognized that care needed to be taken that pagan thought shouldn't infect Christianity, but he also recognized that all truth comes from God. Anything that is really true is going to help illumine the faith, including Greek philosophy. Now, this didn't always sit well with his contemporaries. Tertullian famously asked, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? To which Justin responded, hey, it's all Greek to me. He didn't really say that. Justin lost his head, but gained his heavenly crown in the middle of the second century. When ordered to sacrifice to false gods by the Roman authorities, Justin replied, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. If we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved. For this shall be our salvation and confidence before the terrible judgment seat of our Lord and Savior, which shall judge the whole world. Along with six other Christians, Justin was beheaded and is now known to history as St. Justin Martyr, hero of the Catholic faith. May we all follow his example. And a good way to help do that is to check out all the great free resources available on the St. Paul Center website at salvationhistory.com. You can also find us on Facebook. God bless you guys. Thank you for having me this morning. I want to preach to you today about the resurrection of the body, the foundation of our Christian faith. God's truth carries its own authority. It doesn't need skillful arguments to be true. God's truth is true simply because it is. It doesn't matter if you understand it. It doesn't matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or I believe it. It doesn't matter if it's skillfully delivered or not. God's truth is true simply because it is true. It's not what we do with it that makes it true. But that doesn't mean that as Christians we should be lazy or sloppy in our believing. It doesn't mean that we should be lazy or slopping in our presenting, our understanding, or defending the truth. Because you see, the devil is continually trying to convince people that God and his message is untrue. The devil even tries to seduce believers within the church and to get them to stop believing. And we've seen that unfortunately happen to many of our brothers and sisters in the faith. So it is necessary for believers to be skillful in their understanding of the truth. It's necessary for us as believers to be skillful in being able to present the truth to other people. Again, not that this makes it true, because God is true no matter what, but so that we testify to the truth. We all need to be armed for battle with the doctrines of the faith. We do this to battle the devil, and we do this to protect the people of Jesus. We do this to help those in the church, especially those who are weak in the faith, so that they do not fall away. But we also do this in the church for those that are mature in the faith, so that they don't become lazy 
in their pursuit of God. And we also do this so that those who are outside of the faith have an accurate understanding of what God has done so that they can choose what to do with this. Binding ourselves to the truth does not close our minds. In fact, what I want to encourage you to understand is that as you bind yourself to the truth, it is the very thing that opens your mind. It is the very thing that produces good thinkers. So let us use our minds this morning to defend the doctrine of the resurrection of the body against those who are arguing against it. For this is a foundational doctrine of our church. It's one of our dogmas, one of our creedal statements that we believe in the resurrection of the body. But this doctrine continually comes under attack from those outside of the church and even sometimes from people within the church who don't really know what they're talking about. So let me address four arguments I hear from those who argue against the resurrection of the body and then try to answer each one of them accordingly. Some people will say that, that it is impossible for something like the body, once it has been corrupted and dissolved, to ever be restored again. Now, unless you believe there is no power greater than ourselves, this is really a silly argument. Even the pagan poet Homer says that the gods can do all things and that easily. Notice how, how Homer says of the gods that they can do all things, and then he even adds the words, and that easily. If Homer's gods, if the gods that so many of the people in our culture believe in can do things greater than themselves and that easily, is it then too difficult to think that the most all-powerful one true God whom the heavens cannot even contain, could do something like restore our bodies? The one true God has also given us many proofs that he can do this. Did he not create the whole universe out of nothing? Did he not form the very earth that we walk on? Did he not bring forth the first man and the first woman out of the earth and breathe life into them? And after he died, did God not raise Jesus to life again in the body that there were many eyewitnesses that actually saw him, heard him, touched him, and wrote these things down and testified over this? Not even a hundred years ago? And we have their written accounts? If this is all true, it's not hard then, and certainly not impossible for God to raise the body after it has been corrupted and dissolved. Think of God like a jeweler who creates stones and then forms a mosaic of an animal. And now let's say someone comes along and destroys this mosaic and scatters the stones everywhere. Well, with God, the artist this is not really a problem because God is everywhere. Nothing can be scattered to where God is not. God is the creator and the possessor of every element in the entire universe, visible and invisible. God is the artist who put everything together. Is it not then simple 
for God to be able to regather their sto- those stones and to remake them into the same form of an animal that he originally made? Is God not able to collect even the tiniest elements of our decomposed flesh and make our bodies rise again? If Homer's God can do all things easily, how much easier is it for the one true God of Jesus Christ to do all these things? But other people will say, well then, if the body raises, it must raise the same way that it falls. Uh, Meaning by that, that if, uh, if someone dies without an eye, they must be raised without an eye. If someone dies without a limb, they would be raised without a limb. If someone dies blind, they would be raised blind. Whatever physical defects or maybe even mental defects they have, will they not be raised with those same things? But this second argument against the resurrection does not understand God's intent. While on earth, Jesus continued to do miracles. And the miracles were not random acts of kindness. The miracles were signs that pointed to something. The miracles of healing were signs that pointed to the fact that God was going to restore the body whole. He did these signs to point forward to the resurrection. That our bodies one day, yes, will die, but that they would be raised perfect. Not only raised, but healed. Not only free from sin, but also free from any of our physical defects. Well, this leads others to argue, then, if the body will be raised entire and in full possession of all its members, does that not mean that all of our members will fully function? So, they will say, if we are raised whole, women will be raised with wombs. Men will be raised with their genitals, out of which comes sperm that, when implanted in the womb, can bring about a child. Therefore, will not new children be produced after the resurrection of our bodies? If not, why raise those parts? What purpose or function will these parts have in the resurrection if we are raised whole bodies? Now, to answer this third objection, we have to admit that we don't understand all of this. We don't understand exactly everything that it's going to be like when we are raised again. And so we must admit that we have to speculate a bit. But that does not stop us from affirming that bodies will be raised and raised whole with all of our parts. For our genitals to not be used for sex the way they are now in no way diminishes our humanity. Take the case of virgins. We have virgins within our church. We have some people who are virgins for a certain time of life. We have some people who decide to dedicate their whole life to Christ through virginity. This in no way makes them less than human. Scripture even suggests that virginity may be a higher calling than marriage. 
Look at Jesus Christ. He was not only born of a virgin, but he lived his whole life as a virgin. And yet when we look at Jesus Christ, we say he was the true human one. He was fully human. Jesus' virginity did not make him less human. Humans need to eat and drink. That's the way God made us. And therefore, we can know that in the resurrection, we will be eating and drinking. But we don't need to have sex. Even though we have sexual organs, just as Jesus had sexual organs, that's not something that's needed to be human. Unlike how many of our pagan neighbors behave, thinking that sex is everything that they're about, we know that being deprived of sex does no harm to the body. Jesus implied that there would be no sex in the world to come when he said, marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So let us not marvel then if in the world to come, God raises us whole with all of our parts, but that he does away with certain acts with some of those parts. Because doing away with some of the acts with some of our parts in no way diminishes our full humanity. And it's still a bodily resurrection of full humanity. Now, the fourth argument against the resurrection of the flesh, and probably one of the ones that is the most dangerous for creeping into the church continually, one of the most malicious arguments against the resurrection comes from those who say that the body cannot be raised because our bodies are a vice. Our bodies are despicable. These people say that the salvation of the body would be a disadvantage to us. That it would be much more, much more to our advantage if we could just be disembodied spirits. They declare that it's our bodies that cause us to sin. It's our bodies that cause all of our infirmities. And so, with this logic, they either punish their bodies or they indulge their bodies because they think their bodies don't matter. There are some who even maintain that Jesus never really came in a body. They'll say that Jesus only appeared to be in a body, but wasn't really embodied. See, they're, they're trying to save Jesus from their wrong understanding of the body. They're trying to save Jesus from being tainted with sin. But it's not the, the body that is full of sin. By doing this, they rob the body of the promise Jesus gave it through becoming a body and raising bodily. And yet we are continually told that Jesus was without sin. This negative view of the body has crept into our churches by those claiming to be Christian teachers. But these people lead the vulnerable in our churches astray, and they display a lack of education of even the most basic Christian teachings. See, to God, nothing is secular. There's no such thing to God as holy space. It's all holy. 
God created it all. The earth and our bodies are God's workmanship. Does not the Bible say right in the beginning, let us make humanity in our own image after our likeness? Well, what kind of humanity is God talking about there? It's interesting that right after God says, let us make humanity in our own image and after our own likeness, the very next thing that we read is that God took the dust of the earth and made man. Obviously, physical humanity is what God meant right when he said, let us make humanity in our own image. It is evident, therefore, that man made in the image of God was flesh. Not that God is flesh, but that the flesh was from God, and it was created good. The artist's work that he made from the stuff of the ground was good. Bodies to God are precious in that he created them and he formed humanity from the dust of the earth at the very beginning of time. It is also why God could become embodied in Christ. And in flesh, Christ was both the perfect image of God and he was the perfect image of humanity. Let us make humanity in our own image is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Since our bodies are valuable in God's sight and glorious above all his works, it makes no sense for God to want to just throw them away. Just as it makes no sense for the artist to want to throw away his artwork, it makes no sense for God to want to throw away his creation. It's God's desire to save, to save his very creation. See, often people misread Paul uh, when Paul talks about the flesh in a negative way. In those cases, we need to understand what Paul means by the term. When Paul talks about flesh in those cases, he's not talking about our skin and bones and marrow. When Paul talks about flesh in those cases, Paul is talking about our fallen nature. And it's interesting because when Paul describes our fleshly nature, he often talks about sins of the mind. Greed, envy, lust. Those are fleshly sins, even though they don't mean that they come from our flesh, but they come are, are from our skin, they come from our minds. Our fallen nature, our fleshly nature, equally includes our thoughts, our minds, our invisible spiritual element. And so it's important for us to understand terms, just like we have terms today that have more than one meaning. And we need to understand the context to know what the term means in that context. How is it possible for our body to sin by itself if it is not first enticed by the mind? In the case of a yoke of oxen, if one is loosed from the yoke, the other could not plow alone. Are we a human person if we're just a spirit? Of course not. Are we a human person if we're just a body? No, that's ridiculous. Neither of these by itself is a person. It's the two together 
that we call human. And when God calls a person back to life, he calls the whole person. That's why it's called a resurrection. Does not the painter wish for his work to endure? Do they not renew their work when it begins to decay? If someone builds a house, would they neglect it and watch it fall into disrepair? Would they not come and fix that house up? If that is true, it makes no sense in the same way for God to neglect his own creation, especially the creation of the body. It makes no sense to say that God is only concerned with our spiritual nature and he is not concerned with the physical nature and the physical realm. We are physical just as much as we are spiritual. Why did Jesus, after he was raised, let his disciples handle him and show them the nail prints in his hands? Why did Jesus, by many proofs, persuade his disciples that it was truly him and not a ghost? Implying that if he was a ghost, it would not have been truly him. Jesus said, look, I am not a ghost. It really is me. Meaning that he had to have a body for it to really have been him. He was resurrected. For Jesus to be human and to have been raised human means for him to have had a body. Jesus' resurrection means salvation of the body. Why then do we still endure those dangerous arguments and within our own churches that say that the soul is immortal, but the body is mortal and incapable of being revived? Those are the views of Pythagoras and Plato, of whom I used to follow, but I no longer follow now. I'm a Christian now. And as Christians, we do not proclaim the immortality of the soul. As Christians, we proclaim as the foundation of our very faith the resurrection of the body. Already seen in Jesus, the first back from the dead. And so we do not imitate those doctors who tell their patients with incurable diseases that they might as well just indulge their bodies for their last few years because they're just going to shed them one day anyway. Instead, because Jesus, Jesus rescues us from our sinful desires and promises to raise us bodily when he comes again, as Christians, we regulate our bodies now by following God's wise ways in anticipation of the future, when Jesus comes back again and raises us from the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus and for teaching us the true and the right philosophy. May we orient our minds to the truth because it's through the renewing of our minds to the truth that we live out what it truly means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will immerse ourselves in the study of Scripture, that we will read Scripture, but that we will read it rightly. 
and that we will live in accordance with your truth and with your philosophy, and that we will live in accordance to the promise that you have given us of the resurrection of the body, the forgiveness of sins, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.